This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Babak Hamitsadeh, Director of Repository Development at the Library of Congress. Well, Babak, thank you for talking with us today. Tell us a little bit about your background. What did you do before you came to the Library of Congress? By training, I'm a computer scientist. I got my PhD in computer science and um, actually started teaching as a professor at the University of University of Science and Technology in Hong Kong and later at University of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, as part of my research, I started doing um, work on digital archives and electronic records management. And uh, I became very interested in the area and I did that work for about 10 years before I decided to actually go into uh, making products in that area, not just prototypes and, you know, research results. So that's how I became interested in this work. Did you have an opportunity to, to, um, to build any archives at the, uh, was it the University of British Columbia, did you say? Yes, we built some prototypes uh, based on certain standards and the kind of theoretical work that we had done on projects. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to the Library of Congress? How did you come from your... Uh teaching job to the Library of Congress. Right. Uh, I was invited to one of NDIP workshops earlier, like it was an NDIP NDIP planning workshop. And I really became interested in the mission of the program as a whole. And I got exposed to what's going on or what um, my now boss, Laura Campbell, was planning to do uh, as part of NDIP and for the library in general. And so later when an opportunity came about, I applied and And you must have, you, you must have got, arrived here with some ideas about the state of digital archives in, in the decade or so that you taught. Did you see any trends or any emerging issues that you could apply to the library? Yes, of course, uh, in the last couple of decades, you know, the information explosion is really the main thing. And... I realized that managing information at such large scale and still keeping reliability, accuracy, and authenticity issues intact while you manage such large um, amounts of information is definitely a challenge. And as far as digital archives and digital preservation is concerned, there really wasn't that much work in, in computer science. Archivists and librarians had started, you know, realizing the challenge, but work in computer science in that area was... Practical work that was done. Yes, it was limited. Uh, So, and when I came to the library, you know, the American memory was actually one of the early works in this area. It was quite impressive for its time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was time to reconsider several aspects of digital library systems and maybe redesign parts of them and also build tools that can enable curators and digital librarians to do their work. Now, was, was that difficult, enabling librarians to do their work? Because I could see how you talk, you're talking about the back end and building this repository, this environment for this stuff to go into. But librarians, the average librarian, of course, you don't want to burden them with command lines and things of the sort. So was that a difficult job to, to do the complex back end and the simple front end? Right. First of all, you used the past tense 
you said, <laughs> was it? Uh, I don't want to imply that that work was done and is all <laughs> complete by any means, and I'll explain why. Um, yes, it's a very difficult job, partly because in this large institution, different parts of the library, with the, the, the curators and the digital librarians have different requirements, they have different workflows, they work with different standards, different content formats, and their access requirements and their patrons' access requirements are quite different. So actually, right uh, away, you realize that gathering requirements for some general purpose tools uh, is not a very easy task. And then, of course, you have to work closely with librarians um, to be able to come up with tools that they are comfortable with and really increases their productivity in doing their work. Another, th um, you know, when you mentioned the state of the affairs when I first joined, at that time, any system that was available, it was usually built for a technical person to run. So let's say you say a digital repository system. The system really assumed a high level of technical knowledge for it to be operated. So we, try, we are trying to change that so that these systems are easy enough for librarians to use. And of course, you, you, you would test this all along to make sure, like a user testing to make sure it was usable, right? Yes, definitely. And, and uh, when you mentioned large-scale storage, now back in what year was this, 2002 when you first came to the library? 2003? 2004. 2004. Large-scale changes all the time. So did you have a number as to what large scale means, petabytes, terabytes, or, or did you, you have a better system where you can actually make this modular where the number doesn't matter, you know, you can keep, like it'll keep scaling up and up and up for, mm -hmm. for future demands. Is, is that a fair question to ask? Definitely, as far as the amount of storage is concerned, so first of all, we were looking even at that, you know, in 2004 already at petabytes of uh, content. One aspect of scalability is the amount of storage. And in a lab that we built to do our, or I call it a lab, it's really a development environment, that we built to do our um, software development, we used um, commodity hardware and a very flexible architecture to be able to scale up uh, storage. And that has shown quite an ability to uh, scale. And handle, just handle more. Handle more, yes. One interesting uh, aspect is the fact that now it's not just storage that is a factor in scaling up, but also processing power. When you talk about petabytes of data, just being able to check some petabytes worth of data and do it regularly you need pretty powerful machines to constantly retrieve and do bit checking and that kind of thing. So, and of course, that's something that that's static. That's that's a totally new challenge because you know in the library world of books and photos and all, once something's categorized and put on the shelf, it's okay. You assume that it's okay, but you're talking about a constant verification process, right? Where you're going in it periodically and, 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 and verifying that stuff is still okay, that it's still intact, or when do you actually check it 
Do, do you check it at regular intervals, or, or how do you how do you check that it's yes, okay? Yes, I mean there are different schemes depending on our different programs and our different program requirements. Um, some we may have events that trigger an audit and a check. Um, let's say a file gets lost or something like that, and then we go and check everything to see how much you know what the extent of the loss was. And in some other cases we do audits and checks on a schedule, on a regular schedule. So it depends on what the requirements are. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the lab. So you, you, you built this lab from, from scratch, or this development environment, rather. You built it from scratch. I'm sure you spec'd it out. took you know, quite a bit of time to spec it out, the data model and the hardware needs and all. Um, just tell me some more about, about putting that together. With that, with that. Okay. It's kind of a a first-of-its-kind thing to, to yeah. assemble this, isn't it? Yes, it's, it was quite an interesting uh, experience. Um, so first of all, yes, we, we were on a very low budget, and we wanted, a, we wanted to have a very flexible environment to be able to develop you know, agile software, prototype, and then as it matures, we de- you know, deploy it to production. And of course, we have pretty you know, stringent security guidelines and so on that we have to uh, abide by. So these were all challenges, but the main challenge was because we were already in a program, and that was the digital newspaper program, the National Digital Newspaper Program, NDMP, the challenge was the fact that the program was already going. Content was coming in, and we were designing this development environment, the hardware and so on, as well as the software that helped manage the content. And then by management of it, I mean acquiring it, you know, bringing it into the library, uh, making it accessible, preserving it, and so on. All the software, hardware, and the content were coming together at the same time. So this so stuff came, it, was, it, it came in on drives, the stuff, the ne- newspaper right. stuff came in on drives that we could ship to the library. And right, and we had to put it into storage, and we had to tag it, and we had to index it, and we, have to, we had to do all of this stuff as we are building the software, and as we are, we are building the, or putting together the hardware and configuring it. So a lot of times you feel like, okay, you know, if I'm, I'm supposed to have, um, if I'm supposed to store something, I better have the storage already ready for it and know how to manage that storage but all of this was going on at the same time and if I can just mention one more thing about that this actually in retrospect it may not have been so bad to have the real content and its stream you know at the the rate it would arrive and its arrival patterns were very real we were already in the midst of it it was not so bad to be able to build this software as we were getting, you know, we were placed in this very real situation because then you really know where the, what the requirements really are rather than design and build in advance and then start bringing things in. So it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Right. In some cases, of course, you know, you have to have no things in advance and it helps if you have the details. But in this case, we really knew all the nuances of how data needs to be handled. So it gave you, so there is probably a lot of um, rewriting the rules on the fly. Yes, of course, rewriting, we first had to write the rules 
uh, to begin with? Yeah. Uh, that's also a very good question. Um, there weren't, you know, that many rules. So we wrote them as we went. And if they proved not very good, we had to revise them. Luckily, though, we had we knew that we are in this situation and we really bootstrapped ourselves uh, well and took a conservative approach to content. We, you know, kept several copies on different uh, storage media and different locations uh, and checked it regularly to make sure that if something goes wrong, the content doesn't get lost. Was there anywhere you could turn to outside of the library for, not, not so much for help, but to try and get some ideas, uh, you know, uh, uh, say a scientific institution, maybe a NASA or somebody like that, who is used to dealing with large amounts of data. And, and Did you look outside the library for yes, certain ways to do it? Yeah, Absolutely. And in fact, NDIP really helped us get exposed to the work that was going outside. Very early on, uh, we visited and started uh, discussing uh, our projects with Los Alamos National Lab and Harvard University libraries. And we were very aware of the kind of work that was going on outside. And then later, California Digital Libraries, who is a partner in NDIP and a collaborator with us on some of the tools we have built since. and we used several tools that came out of different efforts around the country and around the world, um, be they standards or applications, you know, software applications, and so on. So yes, we benefited from the work outside very much. So you built and you built your own tools. You you adopted their tools. Definitely yes. Um, so, and and you mentioned that the NDNP, the newspaper stuff, was was coming on. Um, arriving on drives, um, at some point you you started accepting things over the network too. Can you talk about that a little bit, how right. it arrives over the internet? or Yes, although primarily still in that particular program we're still receiving uh, drives, we do now have uh, the option of transferring content um, through internet. And we've built some tools around that to verify and um, make sure that the content gets transferred reliably. So it doesn't matter how it arrives here, whether it's on a drive or some other storage medium or over the network. That's right. Okay. So can you describe what it's like now? Having set up the repository, what's it like today? Uh, in the last five years, we have now gone through several releases to production of the NDMP system, the newspaper uh, repository, and it's very uh, popular. Our um, visits or hits that we're getting on the internet to the site have gone up close to 10 times since last year. We're getting about 100,000 hits a day compared to like 10,000 last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also built the World Digital Library uh, system that was launched for public use uh, last April. Where does that reside, by the way, the World Digital Library? Where, where did, which server does it sit on, and where is it? Okay, it's a combination. It has We have two sites. Uh, one is through one of these digital global networks. It's a commercial uh, service. And, of course, one copy is at the library. 
And um, now that system is a multilingual system. It has it uh, accommodates seven languages, the mm. official languages of the UN plus Portuguese. So that's another system. And uh, these days we are very busy with the e-deposit program and uh, we're starting to build uh, systems that allow us to acquire content through the copyright office, acquire electronic or digital content through the copyright office and into a repository system where it can later be um, cared for, preserved and made available. So the e-deposit program, is that the formal name or is that what we call it? Is it the e-deposit? It's pretty much the formal name. Okay, and that is an official, can you explain that a little more? It's a requirement, isn't it? A government requirement for publishers? Right, Uh, that basically the copyright law requires uh, or allows the library to demand copies of uh, works that are published. and now we're basically trying to... Electronically, publish electronically. Well, up to now, no, but just now we um, published a rule that is going to allow us to demand content that is published in electronic form as well. So basically, we're trying to build our collections through uh, deposit of copyright materials. Mm-hmm. And again, the tools that you use enable others to directly deposit, or how, how does that work? Yes, we're definitely working on that. Yes, we're. Uh, one of our efforts was to build a tool set called the content transfer mm-hmm. uh, tool set. Mm-hmm. The Bagot specification that is now becoming more popular is part of that uh, whole specification and. Um, tool set. And the Bagot specification just tells you how to package your stuff up to send it to the library. Is that correct? Exactly. So now we are definitely going to use parts of that for the e-deposit as appropriate in working with publishers to receive content from them. Um, Also, we are going to use different modules of the repository systems that we have built for the newspapers or for other materials to develop uh, the tools and uh, management environment that we need for managing the content that we get through the e-deposit program. Who would do the managing? Are you talking about managing it within the library or having others from the outside? For the most part, the management, uh, once the content is here, will be done by the library. Mm -hmm. And that brings up something else. Once, can you describe for me what it's like from beginning to end, from from somebody who has somebody outside the library who has content, and they're depositing it or sending it to the library, what happens to this content once it's brought in or as it's brought in? Mm-hmm. Of course, depending on the submitter of content and what kind of a technical infrastructure they have and want to use, it varies very much from one submitter to the next. But at the base of it, first of all, we have to make sure that what was intended is actually received. So we have to make sure that a reliable and a validated transfer of content takes place. Of course, the means of transfer, just like you mentioned before, the transfer medium, be it hard drives or network, 
have to be decided and agreed upon between, say, us, the receiver of the content, and the sender. And then once the content comes in, we have to be able to understand what's, what is sent. In other words, the semantics, the meanings of it. Um, if it's packaged, we have to know how it's packaged. If it's a complex set of objects, we need to know what the components of a, of a particular object are, where they reside, if there is any information about the content, metadata, uh, where, where they are, where so we can find them inside a package. And by objects, you mean that it might be a bunch of photos, it might be a bunch of JPEGs or a bunch of documents or PDFs right, or something Right, or like pages that. of a newspaper or right. articles of an issue of a volume of a particular journal title. Right, right, right. right. So it's not only the file itself, but what's inside the file, if you were right. to open it up and look yes, at it. Yes, that's very so, important. So just a description about the content, but you also need to know whether, well, I know that, that sometimes a, a photo, for example, a JPEG photo can get misnamed, mm -hmm. computers misname things, right? right? So you need to confirm, you need to validate, as you say, that it is what it says it is. You need yeah. to make sure that that's true mm -hmm. and then understand what's inside it, right? Right. Yeah. And as when you had mentioned files, you know, the mapping of the logical or the intellectual content to a file. By intellectual content, I mean, let's say if it's a letter, the contents of the letter, something that is understandable by a human, to a file is also very important. We need to f understand that uh, and parse it. So let's say if the letter is divided into two files, we need to know that half and which half, the first half or the second half, is in file A and the second half or whatever is in file B and they both together constitute a letter mm -hmm. sent to the library. And I imagine things are part of a collection too and you need to know if exactly. things are related if they all belong together. Correct, and correct. Together. And it goes, you know, these all these aggregations come from components of one object to interrelationships of different objects all the way to larger and larger aggregations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So once that comes in and you, and you validate it, you bring it into the library um, and, and you, you, you validate it. Um, uh, and are you talking about this analysis of this right, stuff too? Yes. There's some kind of analysis right. It has to first be examined. So okay. you can imagine uh, part of the examination may be facilitated by some tools, but still it's very likely that we will still need a human looking at, you know, doing part of the examination. Okay. So it's important to realize that it cannot be one uh, box with one button and it just takes all the content and it sorts through it all and indexes it and makes it searchable and comes out, you know, at the other end. Right. Definitely human involvement is going to be required. But up to that point, it could be automated, brought in, tagged. And then sure. Up to that point, it could be automated. We're but trying then, to automate as much of it as possible, yeah. as and as much of it as it makes sense. Okay. But all I'm, what I'm saying is that you know, full automation is not even necessary, and you know, certain things humans do more efficiently, and they should continue doing that. <laughs> so we're still useful for now. We're still exactly. humans are still useful. Oh yes. So, so once it's examined, you, where does it go? Right. So once it's examined, basically, you know, a, a package of content now needs to be opened 
and classified and be placed in storage and inventoried and um, later be prepared for access, basically, uh, if there are indexes and um, naming conventions to be followed, they will have to be done and um, all the way to the end. Okay. To the end for us is basically where it can be searched and accessed and yeah. browsed through. And there would be other topics, of course, you know, the, the retrieval process and the finding aids and all that. That's Exactly. But right. so far you've taken this thing and put it in a safe place and given it, you know, given it information and, 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 uh, and guaranteed that it is what it says it is. So you got it here safely and you tucked it away safely and you have it marked right. in some descriptive way that it could be found again. Exactly. Wow. Is there anything you want to say about the challenges of working with other institutions? You know, we have our ingest system bringing things mm-hmm. in, but does content arrive in different ways, mm-hmm. make you scratch your head and say, oh my gosh, what do we do with this now? It's- right. Uh, as I mentioned, part of the challenge is how different institutions vary from one another in the way they exchange information. And it's very hard to come up with one standard. One interesting aspect of this is how good a technical infrastructure the submitting institution has. Usually, the better infrastructure they have and the more advanced um, technical tools they have, the harder, because they've been doing this and they've developed their own tools and ways of doing it, the harder it is to change that and they would like to stick with it because they have spent money on developing those things and they want to continue with that. Mm -hmm. And they exchange with other institutions, so they don't want to just do a special one for us because of the way we take content. So uh, yes, a challenge is the fact that different um, so institutions what do, you do it differently. And another challenge is even if you agree with one institution about a particular way of exchanging information, one of the challenges is whether that institution sticks to the way agreed. So even the, the packaging formats or the modes of transfer and so on over time may change. Uh, or the information itself uh, may change and you may not know it and you may have assumed that it's the same old scheme but things may have changed and that causes So, So what would be the solution, you know, going forward as institutions more and more start, start these pipelines of data to each other? What do you do? Right, you, have of to, you have to agree on standards yes. or you have translators that translate from one way of doing things to another? Or? Right. Of course, the more we agree on standards, the less we need these uh, translators that you mentioned or and parsers fixes, yeah. or content yeah. normalizers mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, but until then, we're going to have to rely on these parsers and um, content normalizers. Mm-hmm that cater to different specifications. And still, you know, the work is, the work is young, right? It's, right. it's just part of the new century is, is yeah. building this and storing this and, and headed in that direction of lots of digital stuff, mm-hmm. um, which brings up what you plan to do next or what plans the library has for uh, uh, not any single one plan, but now that the repository is built 
and in production and handling things. Mm. And you're building these tools for, for users to use and uh, give data to, to or content to the library. Um, what do you have in the works or what do you have planned for the yeah. near term and long term? Uh, I mentioned the content transfer tool set and one characteristic characteristic that's free that. isn't it by the way that's we should yes. mention that, that it, it is, is free, free and available and bits and pieces of it are uh, getting released on SourceForge mm-hmm. and available to anybody in um, the content transfer tools are trying to be um, generic in other words be applicable to different content types it shouldn't matter what content you're sending you should still be able to use these of course in transfer we picked that particular area because the semantics of the content are not as important when you're just sending things back and forth um, as a package. But the moment you get into examining and validating and parsing what you have, all of a sudden having these general purpose um, tools becomes more of a challenge. But generally that's the direction we're going from say content transfer tools that are fairly general purpose and we use them on various projects, we now want to build other tools and applications that are easy enough to be used or reconfigured for purposes and requirements of other projects easily so that we can launch these projects with um, lower cost and more efficiently and have, don't, not to have to have another set of skills um, for the people who use the tools to use them. So mm-hmm. same set of skills, same set of people using the same tools, doing um, curation for different collections, different content types. And our conversation so far has been technical. It has to be. You're dealing with with the world of data, but it's also information technology. You're, it's the world of digital libraries and information institutions. So I guess more and more di- librarians aren't just librarians. You know, there's, there's this overlap, isn't there, of, um, in IT, they're the engineers, but what do librarians need to know about, you know, as they use your tools? I don't know, did you want to say anything about that, about, sure. about librarians and the future of librarianship? Yes, that we definitely need um, digital librarians. And there are actually programs now at the government level, national level, to train digital librarians. In some universities are starting programs like this, and it's very important. Uh, they don't need an engineering background, right? They don't need to go at that level. Not but necessarily. What do they need but to But some, they do need to be familiar with certain formats. Um, they need to be at least be familiar with the challenges, be able to use tools, be trained to use tools. But an interesting um, twist to what you said is I really think that the IT people who work in this field also need to be familiar with libraries. They can't just stay in their IT shop and not know what's going on in the libraries. That's also quite important. We have to make these two groups meet in the middle somewhere. How would that work? How would, how the IT people, what do IT people need to know about libraries? You know, when we first started um, this conversation, I mentioned that getting the requirements is very challenging. 
It varies a lot from one division to the next. And even sitting and listening to somebody is not necessarily easy for an IT person to right away get the requirements because this is library sciences and archival sciences are their own disciplines and they have their own theoretical underpinnings and so on. That takes a while to uh, understand. And in order to get decent requirements, you really have to be able to speak to one another well. The librarians, archivists need to understand a little bit of what the technologists do and need in order to do their work and vice versa. And neither should be intimidated by the other. Absolutely. Well, Babak, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.